Hey everybody, this is Joseph, one of the pastors at the First Presbyterian Church of Flint, and I wanted to welcome you to our sermon podcast. Each week, this show features the latest sermons preached here at First Pres, and we hope that they encourage you in your faith and work as you listen. This fall, we're preaching a 10-week series of sermons called When Religion Fails, and we're using Jesus' teachings and parables from the Gospel of Luke to reconsider what it means to truly follow Christ. Here's this week's sermon. grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let the church of Jesus Christ say, church, I want to take you with me to a Sunday afternoon, one week in January in the year 1991. I was eight. I looked like this. Because it was a Sunday, that meant it was a family day. And on this particular Sunday, we did what we often did on family Sundays, and we came home from church, ate a quick meal, and then got back in the van to go visit my grandparents who lived down in Madison Heights. But this family Sunday was different than most because it was the family Sunday that fell after my eight birthday, and so this trip meant, uh, this trip to my grandparents meant there'd be a birthday celebration, and that meant cake and ice cream. It also meant presents. It was a day that I would come to learn a great deal about my grandparents that I didn't know, but more on that in just a bit. My grandparents were the son and daughter of immigrant families, one coming from Slovakia, one from Hungary. They lived in a housing cooperative, a small neighborhood where other second-generation immigrant families had moved. My grandfather was my namesake. He is Joseph Andrew Novak I, and I, Joseph Andrew Novak II, a title that I exalted in loudly announcing to my grandmother whenever I walked in their home as a three-year-old. Joseph Andrew Novak I was a man who spent his childhood roaming the hills of Pennsylvania with a slingshot, trying to catch rabbits for his impoverished family to eat. He's a man who stood in bread lines in the 1930s and who then went to work for the Civilian Conservation Corps to earn a living. A man who would go on to work on cranes building bridges across the state of Michigan while Mary, my grandmother, worked briefly for the phone company as a switchboard operator and raised three boys. My grandparents lived in a house that my grandfather built with his own two hands. It was well-constructed but extraordinarily modest, maybe 1,200 square feet in total, filled with carpet and furniture that would never once be replaced in my lifetime. They knew no luxuries, experienced no lavish, all-expense-paid vacations. They were not part of exclusive social clubs, and no city leader in Madison Heights wondered what the Novak family thought about key issues. Of the little they had, my grandparents were extraordinarily lavish in their generosity, especially towards their grandchildren. 
Their poverty meant that they had to get creative about how they pinched and saved, but they did so in order for Christmases and birthdays to be special days. But for now, all you need to know is that my grandparents had very, very little to call their own, and by the time me and my kid sister came around, my grandparents were living on a single small pension in their single floor small home surrounded by other single floor small homes. Back to 1991, however, when we meet Joey Novak, newly eight, visiting his grandparents on a Sunday in January. The afternoon had been spent watching the Buffalo Bills decimate the Los Angeles Raiders 51-3 to in the AFC Championship game. Dinner had been served. Happy birthday had been sung. The cake had been cut. Ice cream had been enjoyed, and the family had moved from the dining room table to their usual spots in the living room. It was time for presents. Sitting in the middle of the living room floor, I waited patiently. Now in most years, perhaps two or three perfectly wrapped gifts would be brought out from the secret stash of my grandparents' closet. This year, however, it was one gift, a gift that I unwrapped with abandon. It was a Lego set. It was a big Lego set. It was Lego set 6081, to be exact. The King's Mountain Fortress. It was the set to have in 1991, and I knew that it cost over $60. I was excited. And church, let me tell you right now, the story should have ended there with me being overwhelmed with gratitude and thankful to my grandparents for this expensive gift. But that's not how this story goes. Instead, the Lego set still on my lap, I turned to my grandfather, a man whose hands were calloused from decades of manual labor to scrape together a living for his family, and I opened my eight-year-old mouth, and I said, not thank you, but are there any more? (laughs) The impertinence of the question hung in the air like smoke. My grandparents found it amusing, as grandparents are oft to do. My mother, however, did not. And I know some of you know Terry Novak to be a gentle, warm-spirited woman, which she is. But on this January evening, my mother hauled me from the room and rehearsed for me the financial realities of my grandparents in an urgent, whispered harshness and told me in no uncertain terms that I would go out and apologize or we would be giving the Lego set to another child who knew what gratitude looked like. My grandparents had given this gift to me. It was not my place to say anything other than thank you and to enjoy this gift. Are there any more? Yikes. We're a couple weeks into a sermon series we're calling When Religion Fails. We're considering the shape of Christian discipleship according to Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. We're examining how these teachings and parables of Jesus uh, kind of apply pressure to the religious joints of our lives and cause them to break apart a bit. What does following Jesus look like? We've seen that it looks like practicing critical discernment in the way we engage with the world, and that religion fails when it tells us all we have to do is say yes or no. 
We've seen that it looks like tearing down those walls that separate us from the plight of the suffering and that religion fails when it does not cause us to use our stuff to relieve the suffering of another human being. And today we're considering a gospel text that is short, but perhaps a bit off-putting to our ears because it takes as a subject the household realities of the first century, an era in which certain people existed as the so-called property of another. The New Testament refers to these people as douloi, a word that is translated by the New Revised Standard Version as slaves. Other versions soften this word a bit and use the less aggressive word like servants, but if we go down this route, we may be tempted to picture Downton Abbey and the way in which the wealthy elite employed servants and butlers and chauffeurs, but I think that it is good for us to stop and realize that in Jesus' day, the folks known as douloi were not folks who were building a resume by taking jobs from households who posted an ad in the classified papers. For those under the age of 30, that reference wasn't for you. In Jesus' day, folks came to be douloi in a few different ways. In Greek and Roman societies, one vile form of birth control was called exposure, where people would just leave their undesired newborns out on the street to die. Those looking for free labor would rescue these exposed infants and raise them from a young age to be douloi in households and fields. Other people would become douloi because their nation had been conquered by a different nation, and the result was that the people of a certain age would become slaves for a period of time in the show of national dominance. Other times, impoverished people would sell themselves into slavery to guarantee they would have a place to live and food to eat. And other times, those who were unable to pay their debts would be forcibly enrolled into slavery until they'd worked the debt off. However, someone came to be a douloi as slaves, they were forced to do the agricultural or household chores of a household. They were considered to be merely the property of well-to-do families. They were the background actors, the implements of the home that made food and cleaned up and harvested fields and milled grain. Owners of douloi were as likely to thank their slaves, as you are likely to thank your oven for cooking your dinner tonight. We should note that slavery in the first century was not like the brutality of slavery here in the United States, a dehumanizing and multi-generational brutality whose socioeconomic impact is still being experienced today in nearly every sector of our society. For starters, douloi in the first century were not targeted because of their ethnicity, but mostly because of their economic conditions. Secondly, when Duloy turned 30, they were automatically emancipated and granted full citizenship, except if they were still paying off debts. However, even these differences do not excuse the institution of owning a human person. These human persons were still considered to be property not individuals. They had no identity outside of their status as slaves. The work was difficult. The treatment was sometimes poor. And sometimes the legal emancipation date was fudged to keep people in forced servitude for longer. Greek and Roman societies were nearly built entirely on the backs of thousands and thousands and thousands of douloi 
their hard manual labor behind the scenes created space for the more aristocratic Greeks and Romans to write poetry and create sculptures and compose music and debate philosophy, leading one scholar to say that the economy of slavery is why there is a Greek and Roman culture to know about it all. In Jesus' day, many Jewish households also included douloi, and those who didn't who, and those who did not were certainly familiar with the concept since Greek society was well established in Jesus' geographic region. Now all this to say it's okay if you shift a little in your pew today when the gospel passage has Jesus assuming that his disciples, number one, own slaves, and two, don't thank those who serve them, and three, treat slaves as people less important than themselves. You might rightly be uncomfortable with hearing Jesus tell his disciples that in their work they should say things about themselves like we are worthless slaves. You might wish that we used a version of the Bible that translated it something more like unworthy servants because that feels less aggressive. But here we are. How are we going to wrestle with this short, strange teaching of Jesus? How does this passage show us anything about what discipleship looks like. And for our purposes in this series, how does this text put pressure on the conventional religious joints of our day? If you go back to the beginning of today's passage, you'll see that the whole parable of slaves that Jesus tells is rooted in a bit of dialogue between the disciples, whom Luke calls apostles, and Jesus. Look at verse 5, if you've got it in your order of worship or in your Bibles there. Verse 5. The apostles come to Jesus and say, increase our faith. This is not a request. It is not a question. It lacks any markers of polite respect. This is a demand. It's an imperative. This is a command. Increase our faith. Add to our faith. Give us more faith. This particular form of the imperative in Greek tells us that the command in question is clear and that the person demanding it expects it to be completed just as they ask. Increase our faith, the disciples demand of Jesus. Increase our pistis. Increase our faith. Faith is a hard word to describe in the New Testament because it carries with it all sorts of connotations and imagery. It's the same root word, but it has many different layers of meaning. In the truest sense, the idea of having faith is the idea of having trust in something or believing something to be certain even and perhaps especially when there may not be a concrete reality present to make that belief rational. But the word faith can also mean conviction, it can mean commitment, it can mean the content of what you believe, it can also mean a promise or an oath, it can also indicate a kind of power that allows the user to do miraculous things. In the Greek-English dictionary in my bookshelf, there are 16 different entries for what this one word in Greek might mean, and when it is just dropped in the middle of a story like today's reading, we have to interpret what meaning is the most appropriate given the context. Here the disciples demand that Jesus increase 
their faith. They're demanding that Jesus give them more faith than they previously had. Why? For what end? Is this demand a noble one? What would they do if Jesus indeed does give them more faith? Are they merely looking for more reassurance, a deeper sense of trust? Are they fearful for their future, and so they go to Jesus to help them feel more confident or sure? Perhaps. If so, they're going to the absolutely right source, for only Jesus can give to us that reassurance that we so desperately crave. But here, church, I'm not convinced their intention is noble. Luke calls them apostles, and that's telling. He does not call them disciples. Luke only uses the term apostles a couple times in the gospel. His preferred term for this group around Jesus is disciple, which means learner. A learner might ask Jesus for reassurance. A learner might ask Jesus for more commitment or confidence. But Luke names them apostles here, a word that means sent ones. And the last time he called them that, back in Luke 9, they were telling Jesus about all the miracles and signs and wondrous acts they had done among the villages of Galilee. And here, they're called apostles again, and now they're going to Jesus and they're saying, increase our faith, as if to say, add more of that stuff that lets us do miracles. Increase our faith. And to this demand, I imagine Jesus raising his eyebrows. You know, the way you might raise your eyebrows when your kid asks you how much they're going to get paid if they clean up the basement play area. Look at Jesus' response in verse 6. The Lord replied, if you had faith, and the way it's constructed says that Jesus doesn't think they do, <laughs> if you had faith, just this much, just this little bit, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. If we translate this a little more literally, you get the impression Jesus is expressing a little amusement with his impertinent band of would-be heroes. Say you did have a little faith, Jesus begins. Let's say you did have a little bit of power you want, and let's say that it was just this much. You know what you would do with it? You would tell this mulberry tree to go and be planted in the sea. You would do something that silly. What would you do with faith? Jesus asks. The apostles want power. They want to do miracles and signs and wonders like Jesus does. They ask not for the blessing of this sort of spiritual energy. They demand more of it. Like a child standing at an ATM demanding that it dispense free money to them because it seems like it does so for their grown-up, the disciples are standing before Jesus demanding a bigger allowance. Give us more faith. Give us more faith with the understanding that if I had more faith, that would meant bigger signs, more grand miracles. We want to do cool stuff, Jesus. Give us more power to do it. Like a kid who opened a Lego set for his birthday, but who believes there should be more presents. More than just one thing, the disciples that there sh think there should be more faith, more power, more miracles. But after Riley reprimanding their impertinence in what's left of today's text jesus is going to embody a bit of my mother to me as an eight-year-old 
and he is going to whisk the disciples around the corner and have a quick, quick chat with them about posture and humility and what it actually means to be apostles, sent ones. In what follows, the analogy of douloi and servants that Jesus gives, he tells these apostles that the work of following Jesus is not one where you're doing cool things and reaping great benefits and where the miraculous is your day-to-day reality. Following Jesus is not transactional. We don't help the poor and forgive our enemies and love our neighbors and welcome the strangers and feed the hungry so we get something out of it. More to the point, God is not some sort of cosmic vending machine where you drop your good work into the coin slot and God dispenses more faith. And here I think we arrive at Jesus' pressure test on the joints of religion this week. In this short passage about slaves and duty and faith, I think Jesus is criticizing the what's-in-it-for-me attitude that is an ever-present companion in institutional religion. Oh, I'll come to church if I get something out of it, and I'll stop coming to church when I stop getting something out of it. I'll come to church if my life feels a bit easier afterwards, but if my life is still just as hard, I'm out. I'll come to church as long as God is answering my prayers, but as soon as God doesn't, I'm out. I'll follow Jesus as long as my bills are getting paid, but when they're not, I'll blame God and leave. We don't mean to turn Christian faith into a transaction or an exchange. I don't think we set out to turn God into a cosmic jukebox that plays the music we want after we put our money in. But these kinds of, if I do this, then God will do that, conditions we bring are the trailhead that leads us into all sorts of problems. Religion fails when it turns Christian faith into a transactional enterprise. Religion fails when it looks up at the Lord in prayer and says in its brazenness, is this it? Isn't there anything else? Are there more presents? The word of Jesus today to his disciples is a word of warning to us. The proper posture of those who would follow Jesus is the posture of a servant, somebody who is only doing what they ought to have done. We are not called to have more faith. We are called to be faithful in the way we choose to live every single day. To put the way of Jesus ahead of other competing allegiances, to devote ourselves to the work of compassion, mercy, and hospitality without asking, what do we get in return? We're called to do the daily work of forgiving people who did us wrong. The daily work of blessing our enemies, of clothing the naked, visiting folks in prison. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And the doing of these things is not so that we get more faith or have more power. Last Wednesday night, Our Bible study group here considered the parable Jesus tells in a different gospel about a king who separates humanity at the end of time into two distinct categories. Those who took care of the king in his times of extreme need and those who did not. It's the parable of the sheep and goats from Matthew 25. What I find remarkable about this example is that when the righteous are confronted about how they had acted, 
about how they fed the king when the king was hungry, and how they clothed him when he was naked, and how they welcomed him when he was a stranger, and so forth. Their response is one of utter shock. Lord, they say, when did we see you thirsty or hungry or sick or naked or a stranger or in prison? Like we were just feeding hungry folks on a cold Sunday morning at our church. We were just making sure that the family whose house had burned down had new furniture and clothing and food. We were just spending our Friday night sitting with inmates at the county jail so they would know they were loved. We were just standing outside the sanctuary as greeters, making sure that every single person who came in knew that they were a beloved child of God. When did we see you? And the king replies, just as you did it to the least of these members of my family, you did it to me. Those who Jesus thinks gets it right are the people who do the daily work of Christian faith and mission and service without condition and without expectation of any reward. I want church. I want to be that kind of Christian, the kind of Christian who follows Jesus without wondering what I'm going to get out of it. I wonder if you do too. May God bless this word and keep us in obedience to it. Amen. Thanks for listening this week. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. You can learn more about us at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 10.30 a.m. to worship with us. We would love to welcome you and your family to worship. Have a great week.